So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, uh, we are going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. Uh, we'll be looking at the entirety of the chapter, um, <clears throat> verses 1 through 24. Uh, we're going to break it up into four sections, though. Uh, so again, we'll be in Revelation chapter 18. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me uh, when we get to that point. Uh, and if you are joining us online, you'll be able to read uh, on whatever device uh, you are watching. Uh, I should also make mention um, that uh, if you were here last Sunday uh, when we uh, talked about Revelation 17 and you thought, what in the world happened to chapter 16? Um, we didn't meet in the 11 o'clock service two weeks ago, the week of our disciple now, uh, but we did meet in the 830 service. Uh, so I preached on Revelation 16 then, uh, but not in the second service. So if you uh, are wanting that, that is, uh, it's on the website. You can go back and listen a couple weeks ago. Um, so again, Revelation chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. alive in 1971 to see that when that came out. All right, I got a few of you in the house willing to raise your hands. Um, so that was uh, Coca-Cola's famous uh, It's the Real Thing ad campaign uh, that first aired in 1971. Um, and uh, it's an interesting ad. It kind of set a precedent for ads to come after that uh, about pitching something beyond the product, right? Uh, now, I will say, and I got a little grief for this in the first service, uh, of the carbonated beverages, uh, Coca-Cola is my favorite. I know it's not excellent to, to say anything besides Dr. Pepper, uh, but Coca-Cola is my favorite. Um, but it just kind of ends at that. Like, I enjoy it as a good beverage, or Coke Zero, uh, more appropriately, uh, recently. I, I enjoy that when I need uh, some kind of carbonated beverage. I enjoy that. But that's not what this ad is saying, is it? It's not saying that Coca-Cola tastes good. Uh, it's not saying that it can quench your thirst. Uh, it's not even saying that, you know, if you have a sweet tooth, you might look at Coca-Cola. What it's saying uh, implicitly is that what can bring the world together and create perfect harmony is nothing short of Coca-Cola, right? That Coca-Cola has the power to cross over ethnic lines, religious lines, linguistic lines, national lines, generational lines, and bring us all together. Uh, as you saw the, the, the words at the end of the, the ad, uh, they brought a bunch of young people together on a hillside in Italy to sing this song together. It just seems, seems like the 70s. I wasn't around for the 70s, but it seems like the 70s, right? Uh, when I get the impression of the 70s, kind of the, uh, you know, love everybody kind of mindset, uh, and that it was trying to fulfill that that deep need of humanity to have connection, to have 
friendship, to be a part of something bigger than yourself, something that is transcendent, to meet this existential need within all of us. And companies have been doing the same thing ever since, and probably before as well, but have been doing the same thing through advertising our entire lives. Generation X, millennials, and those younger, they've been doing it our entire lives, trying to sell us items, not based on the utility of the item, but based on some deeper meaning. Um, Beer commercials are famous for pitching you a lifestyle, right? Pitching you whether whether it is a a fast and uh, fast-paced lifestyle that's full of 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 partying and and fun and 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 dating and and all these things, money, all the things that comes with that, or it's it's more of a calm, sitting around a fire, enjoying some friendship with some buddies, whatever it is. It's not the actual product that they're selling you. It is something behind the product. Car commercials might be one of the most famous famous examples of these. They're not just selling you a car. How often do you listen to a car commercial and it's about the the details of the car? Sometimes it is about the miles to the gallon and what kind of motor it is and all the safety ratings and things like that. But oftentimes, more often than not, it's about the feeling that the car will give you, right? Uh, The way that you, they want to make you uh, greedy for that uh, and, and pull you in. That's what product advertising does well. It's one of the reasons why when we watch ads today, sometimes you can find yourself at the end of the ad wondering, what in the world were they even trying to sell? Like, what was that about? What was the product? Because you got caught up in the story. Now, that's obviously missing the mark for advertisers, but they're so set on pitching you a story about meeting some deep need that they miss the utility of the product itself. That's what advertising often does, and it's what our world often does, is it promises to meet our deepest needs, the things of this world, the worldly things around us. Last week in Revelation 17, we began to talk about the figure Babylon, how Babylon has, is representative <coughs> in Revelation of everything <coughs> that is opposed to the kingdom of God, that it is the anti-Christian kingdom, that which seeks to steal our allegiance away from God, <coughs> that which seeks to turn us against God and against his ways. <coughs> Let me get some water real quick. <coughs> here, I got one right here. Thank you. So Babylon again, is that which is set against the kingdom of God, set to steal our allegiance away from God, set to steal our allegiance away from Christ, so that we might not be used by him, and that we might not rest in the salvation we have in Christ, but we might pursue uh, every desire that we have through worldly means. Uh, And it ends in destruction. We talked about that in the end of Revelation 17, uh, and we're going to talk about that much more today, as chapter 18 is about the fall of Babylon itself. Despite what advertisers might try to do through commercials like the ones we just saw, I can ask you a question, and it's not going to be an item that you're going to think of. Let's just say everything and everyone in the world that you're close to, everything that you have, every relationship, every item, every career opportunity, whatever that you have, let's say suddenly all of that were to be gone, every single bit of it, what would you miss the most? What would you weep over the most? Would it be the items? Would it be the comfort and the ease of our modern living? Or would it be the people in your life, the relationships in your life? Or maybe some grand calling in in a career or something that God has laid on your heart and put before you. Would it be those things or would it be 
the material items? Now, you're all going to answer, most likely, it would be the relationships. It would be the people in your life that mattered and not the material items. But sometimes our actions betray that statement. Sometimes the way that we live betrays that desire within us. I don't doubt that most of us, 99.9% of us, have that desire to make our relationships the most important things in our lives, relationship with God and our relationship with the people that God has placed in our lives. But our actions, our behavior, sometimes betray that reality. And we end up chasing things. We chase money. We chase comfort. We chase items. We chase ease. We chase entertainment. All of the things that we chase in our modern world, and in reality, we know that those things will come up lacking, but still there's something in us that wants to chase them. Here's a truth I think we see in Revelation 17 and 18 that we're going to read this morning. A worldly life always ends in disappointment. A worldly life will always end in disappointment. There is no other way for a world dependent, for a life dependent upon the world and the things of this world other than disappointment. There's, other, there's no other way out. And Revelation 18 makes that incredibly clear because the world, Babylon itself, is headed for destruction. Again, we're going to read Revelation 18 together. I'm going to break it up into four smaller chunks, and then we'll go over each chunk as we move along. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful to be gathered in your presence this morning. We are grateful for your Holy Spirit, grateful for the opportunity to lift our voices and our hearts together in praise of you. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. God, we thank you for the gift of your holy and perfect word. And God, we pray that as you always do, you would communicate through your spirit and through your word to us. God, may you do so in a way that would transform us. May we leave this place after encountering you different than when we came. And God, may you move through us as we leave this place. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 18, we'll start in verses 1 through 3. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Again, contextually, we talked about Babylon last time and what Babylon represents, this anti-Christian kingdom, the way of the world that seeks to pull us and our allegiance away from God and point us to finding our satisfaction in anything else other than God. All nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her sexual morality, it tells us. All nations. This is not a particularly Israelite phenomenon. This is not something that's just happening in the Roman Empire at the time that John is writing these words. This is a global thing. All nations. Uh, It is beyond time and space. This is something that all of humanity experiences. Again, Babylon is indicative of the power of the evil one always at work under the evil systems and evil rulers of the world. 
Uh, Paul talks about powers and principalities and how that's what we fight against. Babylon is representative of that, right? It is everything that is opposed to God, always running under the surface of what is evil in the world. Satan himself working against God and God's wishes and God's will. We are in this world. We are a part of this world in which Babylon seems to reign today, but we know that its destruction is coming, and that's what this chapter is about. All nations have drunk the wine of her sexual morality. It is a global phenomenon, and it is something that the kings and the merchants will weep over in the verses to come. It is they who grieve over the loss of Babylon that committed these kings and merchants that committed immorality with her, that grew rich with her. And so we see Babylon, again, as this anti-Christian kingdom being fueled by power and wealth, uh, that that is the, the, the goal of the anti-Christian kingdom, is to become more and more powerful, to convince everyone in the world that they can gain power and that they can gain wealth by doing things opposed to the will of God, not in accordance with the will of God. That there are things in, the, in, this, in this world that entice us with power and with wealth, with luxury and with ease, to pull us away from God and the satisfaction that we can only find in Him. And so that is why we see for of evil work through powerful people in the world. It's why we see forces of evil work through rich people in the world. It's not to say that rich people can be used by God. They certainly can. But we often see the forces of evil manifest themselves through the rich and powerful in such a way that it brings harm to a large number of people. Those who have power and wealth have the ability to influence much of the world. And when the power of the evil one works through them, we see Babylon in its fullness in the world today. And Babylon itself has fallen. I told you last week that as John was writing Revelation 17, to try to put in your mind almost like it was a satirical political cartoon, that Babylon, the system of the world that is often thought to be this great and marvelous, miraculous thing, the great Babylon is really something that pales in comparison to the kingdom of God. And something that God himself will destroy, destroy completely, and destroy with ease. And so this great Babylon, the way of the world and all that the world promises, has suddenly fallen. Let's keep reading verses 4 through 8. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Get out. Come away from her. This is the command that the angel gives to John that John then shares with us, with the church. When you talk about Babylon and the way of the world, the command to us is to run away from her, to, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, to flee from evil, to run 
from evil, that we are to remove ourselves from Babylon, that we are to remove ourselves from the system of the world. You know, we often say as a, as, as a way of cliche or, or just kind of some trite little saying, the world is not our home. But in reality, the world is not our home is, is more than a cliche. It is a profound truth uh, that we've turned into a cliche and sometimes miss the meaning of it, miss the power of it, but something that is very important for us to remind ourselves of often, that we are made for another home, that we are made for another kingdom, that you and I are built in such a way to bear the very image of God and to have the very purpose of God placed within our hearts that we are by our very nature as creatures of God put in a place here on this earth where we will never be satisfied, where we will never find our true purpose. Because our true purpose is a heavenly one. And only when we live in our heavenly reality will we find our purpose even on this earth. This earth in itself was never meant to satisfy us. It was never meant to be our permanent home. God has created us and made us eternally for something more. And so when this world feels off, when it feels like it's full of decay and death and disaster and chaos, we must remind ourselves in not a trite manner, but in a profound manner, that this place is not our home. We are destined for another place. And take hope in that, have, find peace in that, and find motivation to share that truth with others. Because destruction is coming to this world. Get out while you can. Run away from Babylon. Now God punishes Babylon not to be some bully, but punishes her with a punishment that fits the crime. He is paying her sins back, her sins that reach as high as the heavens, John tells us. God is giving back what she gave to the world. Despite the fact that Babylon is depicted as this great thing, a thing that can make everything better, that the world marvels at, she has instead made the world a worse place, made it worse for the followers of God, pulled us further away from him, and therefore deserves to have justice carried out against her. And now I hope you're continuing to see the sarcasm that John is laying on when he continues to quote the characters within this passage, the merchants, the shipmasters. We'll see a little bit more of that. It's saying that Babylon is great, the great city, the great Babylon. There's nothing great about this, this kingdom. There is nothing great about this way of living. And so great it is that God's plagues will be carried out against her in what? A single day. There is no comparison between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world, the battle will not last forever and ever and not wage on. It's not going to be the battle of the bulls where there's a little bit of give here and a little bit of give there. No, it's one day and the battle's over. Babylon has fallen after only one day of the plagues being carried out against her. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 through 19. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of torment and say, in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, 
all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. We see the kings of the earth the merchants of the earth, the traders by sea, the shipmasters of the earth, well and mourn over the destruction of Babylon. But I hope you notice that they do so from a distance. They do so from far off, we are told, for fear of her torment. At the end of chapter 17, we saw how the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, turned their backs on Babylon. They just wanted to use Babylon up. That John presents this imagery of how Jesus has the, the church as its bride, as his bride. How Jesus throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the New Testament, is there to comfort, is there to bring care, is there to literally save the life of the church and the lives of all those who are in the church and to bring them eternal peace and eternal joy and eternal comfort. God has the church as his bride, whereas we saw in chapter 17, Satan has everything that is in the world, those who are chasing after the world as his prostitute. It is what Babylon is called over and over again in chapter 17, a stark contrast between the way that Jesus treats the church and the way that Satan treats the world. Those who gained power and gained wealth from Babylon and all who were a part of Babylon, all who were used up by Babylon, now stand at a distance and watch her mourning. They let Babylon and those who have given in to the lie of Babylon take the fall. They let those who have bought into the, the lie that the world will meet their every need, they let them take the fall. It's not those who are in power or who are in wealth. It's not Satan himself who's being punished yet. That will come. But now they stand back and they watch the world suffer. Whereas Jesus actually enters into our suffering, what we're presented in the anti-Christian kingdom is that those with power and wealth stand back from the suffering that they've created. Jesus enters into a suffering that he didn't create, but he has the answer to. Again, we see the difference starkly between the two realities, between the two kingdoms. If we have our eyes open, we will notice this. But if we have our eyes closed and we are asleep to the nature of Babylon and we buy into the promises of the world that if you just do this, if you just have this career, if you just live the American dream, if you just buy this or if you just kind of live this certain kind of lifestyle, then everything will be right and be peaceful and all will be made well. If we fall asleep and buy into that lie, we are tricked by Babylon, and our end is destruction. Once again, we learn that this great city is only great if you're not really paying attention. 
in reality, not only is it destroyed in a single day, in these last few verses we read, three times it says, it's destroyed in a single hour. It has nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And when Babylon's destruction comes, it will come quickly and completely. And such a wealth of goods will be lost forever. All of the things that are mentioned in verses 11 through 13, all of the costly items, the bronze, the ivory, the costly wood, all of these wonderful, beautiful, you, think, you listen to the objects and you think of, um, you think of these storehouses of, of gold and treasure. You think of uh, if you're a 90s kid like me, you think of Scrooge McDuck, you know, and his, his treasure swimming around in the gold. You think of all of these wonderful things that are just hidden away, and suddenly they're gone. All of this wealth was nothing but a lie. It didn't meet any grand need. And now if you're just reading real quickly, you can miss a horrific thing mentioned in, chapter, in verse 13. Right? At the end of the list of all of the things that are gone, all of the items, all the materials that are gone from Babylon, there is this horrific addition. We have flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls, John tells us. Wow, that escalated. It went from items to actual people. Slavery is the ultimate manifestation of materialism. The ultimate manifestation, the ultimate example of materialism because it, it commodifies, ooh, commoditizes, I don't know that word. It, it makes everything a commodity, including actual people. It makes not just bodies, notice what John writes, human souls. That Babylon has turned the soul itself into a commodity, something to be bought and sold. And that is a word directly for our day. Because while we think about slavery, we might think of it in the past tense, right, as something that is mentioned in Scripture, but certainly as Americans, we're going to think of it primarily through the lens of the African slave trade during the American colonies and our early existence as a country, that horrific period in our past. But slavery is not only something that happened back then. As we've talked about even recently here, slavery is something that is going on today. There are millions of people bought and sold into slavery and trafficking every year in the United States and in the world at large. It is a, a multi-billion dollar industry, the selling and trafficking of human individuals, of people, of souls. And that's what Babylon does, is it turns everything into something that can be consumed everything into something that can be bought and sold. It is the end result of materialism, the end result of greed, the end result of I want more, more, more. I want mine, 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 to where even human beings, human souls, are turned into something that we can consume. It is the ultimate example of Babylon, turning upside down the way that God created things, where humanity, human souls, were the pinnacle of God's creation. They have been turned into a commodity, where human beings, we are told from the very beginning of the story, bear the very image of God, male and female. God created them. In his image, he created them. This is one of the most important things 
the most important thing prior to our salvation in Christ about us is that we are created in God's image and the image bearers of God. The very image of God on earth within humanity is turned ultimately into a product to be bought and sold. And it doesn't just happen with slavery. It, does, it happens so in the world at large. This is what the world is seeking to do to you every day, is to turn you into a commodity, to turn you into something that can be bought and sold, to put you on the payroll of big companies and corporations to make you think that if you just get this or do this or live this way, that you'll have everything you need and you are made a slave to the system and a slave to Babylon. It is something that we don't want to talk about, something that we don't want to think about, but something that, again, is a reality that we must wake ourselves up to. We are enslaved, many of us, to the kingdoms of this world. Babylon has us right where it wants us, and that is ultimately our end in destruction. Slavery is the ultimate example of that. And verse 14 kind of captures the ethos, in my opinion, of this entire passage. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost, never to be found again. Our soul doesn't long for Babylon. Our soul longs for something more. Babylon tricks us into thinking that the things of this world is what our soul longs for. Those things are gone. Those things will be destroyed. A worldly life will always end in disappointment. Let's finish the chapter, verse 20 through 24. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. A sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. While everyone else is crying, verse 20 tells us to rejoice, O heaven, saints, apostles, and prophets, for God has given you judgment against her. While the world weeps, we are told to rejoice. Why? Well, verse 24 kind of answers that question. In her was found the blood of prophets, saints, and all who have been slain on the earth. Babylon's end is destruction. It is a false god to go after anything that this world tells us will satisfy. Its end is destruction, and therefore when it is taken out of the equation, we should rejoice. What does that mean? That means that no longer, when this day comes, in its ultimate sense, when the end comes and Babylon is destroyed, no longer will you be tempted to stray from God. Like even the desire to sin will be removed. What does your particular sin addiction look like? 
Is it one of those big bad addictions that we talk about a lot, or is it something that is more socially acceptable? Whatever it is, are you not looking forward to the day when that itself will be destroyed? That's what I can't get over with heaven and the descriptions of heaven, is that I won't even want to sin anymore. Temptation will be gone and destroyed. The only thing I'll ever want is more of God. And guess what? His mercies are going to be made new every morning. I will get more of Him every day. And I look forward to when those temptations are laid to rest. So yes, rejoice over Babylon being destroyed. Rejoice over the smoke of her burning. While everyone else is crying, we rejoice as this great millstone is thrown into the sea and Babylon is destroyed once and for all and completely, there will be nothing left of her. Nothing left of this anti-Christian worldly kingdom. And even though I've said that we long for Zion and we want Zion and we don't want to want these things anymore, if you were to just read the end of this chapter, the, 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 the verses that I just read, and the things that will be gone, there's going to be a part of you that if you're being honest with yourself, or at least if I'm being honest with myself, that is saddened by these words, almost pulling at the heartstrings, the sound of harpists, musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be gone from you. There's not going to be any craftsmen to make things for you anymore. There's not going to be any mill to make the things that you need. There's not going to be a lamp to shine in you. There's not going to be the voice of the bride or the bridegroom in you anymore. These aren't bad things that are being described here. These are things that are neither good nor bad, but things that we often take joy in in the world. The fact that they'll be gone forever. I love music. I may not make it, but I enjoy listening to it. I was that 90s kid who would listen to a song on the radio and go download it illegally. I didn't know it was illegal at the time, but go download it illegally and listen to it over and over and over again, right? And, and, and listen to the lyrics and, and put it to memory and then break down the lyrics. I'm the kind of guy I want to know what the song means. I want to know what the songwriter was thinking, feeling. I want to know why he wrote those lyrics or she wrote those lyrics. And I would, that's, why I, that's how I listen to songs. Cheryl can vouch for that. I don't know how many times, especially younger, when we didn't have children, we would, I would just put on a song and say, listen to this. And, you know, just listen to it again. Listen to it again. You, you, don't, you, you started talking about something. Stop. Listen to this song. Listen to this truth that's being communicated. The idea of that not being there anymore of 90s alternative music, that's my jam, suddenly disappearing forever. There's a part of me that is wounded by that reality. And the voice of the bride and the bridegroom, again, that's a joyful experience, isn't it? That that's suddenly going to be gone. I know uh, as men, we're not supposed to like weddings, but even I know when I'm attending weddings that there's something beautiful about that. We can act like there's not as men, but let's be real. There's something beautiful about watching this man and woman who love each other and their families come together in this celebration of life and love and, 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 and what the love of God means and what the love of these two people mean. There's something beautiful about that celebration and experience, and the idea that that is going to be no more is in a way heartbreaking. And then the idea of there not being any craftsmen to craft anything anymore. You know, sometimes I just sit and I marvel at what we've done as a, as a human race in the last hundred years. The things that we've pulled off, even in, in my 38 years, the things that have been pulled off by humanity. The fact that, that, that we have literally sent 
a human being outside of our atmosphere that walked around on the moon. That's incredible. And that if Elon Musk and his, his, his buddies uh, have anything to say about it, that we might do the same in Mars in 10, 15, 20 years. It's incredible to think that we're capable of that. It's incredible to think that we've literally figured out how to divide the atom and create nuclear energy. Sure, we've wrought a lot of havoc with that discovery, but it, it still it is one of the most amazing discoveries that humanity has ever made. I'm also amazed that by, our, by our ability to connect with one another like never before. I can literally, man, sometimes we don't, we take for granted what we have. I can literally take something small enough to fit in my pocket, and I can take this and I can send a text to DJ or somebody else on the other side of the world, and almost instantaneously they will be able to see it and then respond. And then I can even dial their number or use some app, that's what's more likely today, instead of dialing their phone number, to communicate someone with someone literally on the other side of the planet almost instantaneously. That is insane that we are capable of that. When you think about when I was a kid back in the 80s and 90s, I still had one of those phones that, you know, you hated somebody who had a zero in the number because you had to go all the way around on the rotary dial. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, we, we still had those kind of, we still had a party line. And I grew up in the country, right, where it was old school. Uh, we shared a line with some neighbors when I was a little bitty kid. And to think we went from that to the connectivity that we have today is insane. I marvel at that. Craftsmen crafting their crafts. And to think that that's suddenly going to go away, there's part of me that mourns over that. But you know what? I've got the wrong perspective. I've got the wrong perspective when I do that. Because even though the, the, the world, the music of this world is fun and great and I enjoy it and there's nothing wrong with enjoying it, there's going to be a music in heaven a new song that we're given that is more beautiful than anything you and I could ever imagine. It will truly be, as Coke tried to be in 1971 with that ad, with a whole world across generational, ethnic, linguistic lines will sing together in perfect harmony. That's music that I want to hear. Sure, I'm going to miss the whole idea of brides and bridegrooms, people falling in love with one another. But as we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 19 next week, there is going to be this marriage feast between Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride that is going to be unlike any celebration that has ever taken place. And yes, the connectivity of our world is amazing, but the connection that you and I will experience with each other in heaven is something that we cannot yet understand, that we can't even yet fully grasp. We will be one as Jesus and the Father are one. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 that I wonder if John is even remembering if he's writing all of these words down. This will be what we experience in heaven. And so it's okay for all of this to fade away. And I'm sitting here thinking about how amazing it is that we've been to the moon. Do you know that our God created the entire cosmos in a single instant simply by speaking it into existence? Oh yes, I marvel at our ability to hop off of this planet and go to the nearest piece of rock next to us, but that is nothing to a God has, who has created giant balls of fire, stars, and galaxies all across the universe, both known and unknown, because we are too primitive to even see that far 
Hagar simply to testify to his greatness forever and ever and ever. Our God is so much bigger than this. Zion is so much better than Babylon. And I look forward to resting in that one day, knowing that it will never be destroyed, that it will never disappoint, that I can have faith that Jesus will meet our every need forever and ever and ever. This world will disappoint you. The kingdom of heaven will never disappoint you. A worldly life always ends in disappointment, but a godly life ends a different way. Those of you who grew up learning how to share the plan of salvation with the Roman road, no Romans, nine, <coughs> no Romans 10, 9 and 10 well. I'm going to read that, and I'm going to read chapter 11 as a way of closing. Not chapter 11, verse 11 in Romans 10 as a way of closing this morning. Because if you can, Paul writes these words, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's where we usually stop. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In the New American Standard Bible, the one where I put this verse to memory, it says everyone who believes in him will never be disappointed. My ESV, it says equally, will never be put to shame. Shame and disappointment are where the world is headed. All that we rely on when we rely on the world will end in destruction. But if we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, we will never be disappointed. So as John says to the Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, I say to us, to myself, to you this morning, come out of her. Quit trusting in Babylon. Flee from sin. Flee from the evil one. Don't trust the false promises of this world. That if you just have this or do this or live this way, that you'll have everything you want and need. It is a lie, and it will always end in disappointment. Instead, trust in the way of Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone will meet our every need. He alone will bring us true peace. And he alone can satisfy our deepest longings. So during our time of invitation this morning, as we worship together through one last song, may we worship the God who does this for us. May you keep that in mind as you worship this God, the God of Zion, the God who meets our every need. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, today is a time when you can start a relationship with him. I would love to talk to you about that. If God is moving in that way in your life, I'll be standing down here to pray with you while we're singing. You can come down or you can find me after the service, and we can talk about it then. If you're joining us online, you want to reach out, just send us a message. We'll have somebody reach back and get in touch with you. We'd love to talk to you about who Jesus is and what he can mean for you. And for those of you who do have a saving relationship with Jesus, may I encourage you too during the time we have together as well as beyond this time to ask yourself to look inwardly and ask yourself, how am I still enslaved to Babylon? Where am I still dependent upon the world for my happiness, for my joy, for my peace and comfort? And how can I come away from that? How can I escape that through the grace and power of Jesus? How can I get away from that? If you need to pray about this or anything like it, I'll be down here to pray with you. The altar will be open if you want to pray there. You can always pray right where you're at, with someone or by yourself. But let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Ethan is going to lead us in our last song. 
And as he does, would you move in whatever way God's calling? Father, once again, we thank you for today. We thank you for your presence here with us. God, we thank you for being a God who will never disappoint, who will never let us down. God, may we trust in you, and may you forgive us for the ways that we depend on this world. God, may you show us where we're still enslaved to Babylon, and God, give us the wisdom, give us the power, and give us your grace to free us from those things. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.